Well, good morning. It's great to see you on the uh, the Lord's Day today. I want to congratulate again all the graduates and for those of you who are families and visitors, it's just wonderful to have you along with us. We've got a couple of special guests that I just want to point out. Uh, for several years, we had among us uh, a young couple who are now done with seminary and looking for their first call in ministry. I told Michael McGowan, right over here, welcome, Michael and Christy, good to have you here, that he could use me as a, a reference. And never in my life have I had so many churches call me and send me forms to fill out. And as soon as you get a full-paying job, I'm going to bill you, man. <laughs> and going, I've been writing essays on you for weeks, and, and there's just too many good things to say. So really cheering for you as you go. And uh, a dear friend, uh, Rob Jansen's from Monroe Christian Reformed Church. He's the clerk, the kind of the, the uh, communication and procedures coordinator of our group of Christian Reformed Churches. He's excellent at it. He's the funniest man on earth, and Rob and his family are here with us today. And it's really great to be in worship with you. It's good to have you along. I'm going to share a story to get us started. You know, when pastors tell stories, people come up to you afterwards, and they'll say things like this. Pastor, was that story you told true? And I've got a standard answer for that. I always say, well, if it wasn't, it really should be, right? And then my second answer is, is that your original story? And I've learned the hard way to attribute when you borrow a story. Because when you borrow a story and somebody knows you borrowed it and you don't give credit, they, they think you're kind of slimy, right? So I want to give credit for this story to uh, an old uh, friend and a pastor that I work for at University Presbyterian Church named Earl Palmer, a great teacher in his own right. And he tells a story like this. Uh, an American missionary and some Filipino nationals from a mission organization in the Philippines were going out to the, a remote island in the Philippines by a, a little boat with this ancient jeep with big wheels on it stuck on a ferry that was way too small to cross the ocean. So he was petrified from moment one, and so were all these other missionaries going out to this island to visit a very, very remote village where a missionary that um, Earl knew was, was working, and he was going with these others. So they got on this island, and it was primitive, unpopulated. The roads didn't necessarily look right, like roads. And they were trying to find their way around. And they were wandering forever on this island, road after road, lost. And tensions were getting a little bit high. And they advanced on this dirt track where they were constantly getting hit by vines and bushes and things looking like the road was ending. And uh, they finally spotted a small building. And this was a start of good news because they were getting very frustrated about finding where they were going and wanted to ask a couple directions. It would have been also handy, too, for them to fill up their gas tank because they're getting a little bit nervous about their lack of fuel. And uh, they saw this building. And then I don't know if any of you remember the mobile, the flying horse for mobile gasoline. Those of you who are my age or older remember that little sign. And they spotted this on the side of this old building. But no one was there. It looked like it was closed. So they started honking and hollering. And finally, this Filipino gentleman came out and did, did admit that this was a gas station in a small store and he could help them out. And they didn't see any gas pumps. And the guy said, well, come in here. And they went back and there was this whole yard full of jerry cans, full of gas. It looked like, you know, explosion waiting to happen. They carried a couple of cans out and started filling up the Jeep. And they were asking this guy if he happened to know... Uh, in Philip in Tagalog, they were asking him if he happened to know where this village was and could he help him get there. 
And the guy said, yes, I know where it is. Give me a minute. And he went back into this building and came back out with a little rucksack and everything. And he said, let's go. And they said, well, we thought you were going to give us a map or draw us directions. And he goes, no way in the world. I just went in and closed the store and locked everything up. I'll go with you. I'll show you how to get there. And they were so happy. Thanks be to God for a guide. The guy said, if we had given you a map or directions, you may never be seen again. (laughs) So this guy got in the Jeep and rode along and showed them the entire way to this village and introduced them to the people they'd come to see. And I love this story because maps can be confusing. Confusing. Directions can be very ambiguous. Have you ever tried to follow directions? I, I always say somebody gives you directions, you go left here, right here, and then after about two turns, I can't recollect what I'm supposed to do. And and they give you the names of seven streets to turn on to get where you're going, and, and it's just a hopeless cause. And and so this guy actually becomes a guide. And of course, one of the really cool things about having a guide is it takes the weight off of you. And it leaves the work to them to show you where to go and get you to your destination. Of course, I, I think this is something that's really important. We need mentors and guides in our lives. In fact, in terms of our own life and salvation, we have this wonderful guide that's come to join us in Jesus Christ, right? And he shows us his way, his truth, and his life as we walk with him in a living and dynamic relationship. And inside the Christian life, we have people that come alongside us as guides, and those are ever so important to help us along life's way in the Christian journey. And I want to talk here a little bit about how we can have opportunities to guide each other in a life of walking and living in the Spirit, a life of worship lived out on a daily basis, how we can guide each other in that, and also how easy it is for us to neglect guiding each other and become kind of laissez-faire in our lives and allow our relationships that were meant to be lived in the Spirit to sink to a, a low level of just social fellowship and companionship. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 5:18 to 20 and share a little bit about today about the idea of us actually infusing worship into each other's lives, both in how we gather here and how we interact with each other as we march through our weeks, through our lives, through our marriages, our families, our friendships and our our vocation in life. So here we go with Ephesians 5:18 to 20. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today to open our eyes to what you have to say to us in this text not just to understand it at the head level, but may we see through the eyes of our hearts and may your word strike a mark in us and somehow enliven in us the passion to be guides to one another in lives of worship. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. This text opens with don't get drunk with wine. I think getting drunk with wine is just an example of one of many ways to become lax 
In fact, I remember Steve Martin's first album when it came out where he's got balloons all over his head blown up, and one of his things on there was about smoking marijuana. And he used to say, when you smoke marijuana with people, you're just throwing away your brain. And so he'd, he'd do that by saying, let's get stupid. And there's a lot of ways to get stupid in our lives, whether it's the diversion of drugs, alcohol, uh, diversions in the area of sexuality, diversions in consumerism. There's all kinds of ways that we can become virtually debauched. We can become less than what God wants us to be. We can reduce our lives to something closer to animal living than living in the spirit. Um, Paul often warns about distraction um, by using the gifts of God improperly. And I think you picked this up in the writing of the New Testament. Paul's continually not condemning the things that we have in the world. For instance, he says, wine? Go ahead and take some from your stomach. It gladdens the heart of man. It says so throughout the Bible. Getting drunk? That's debauchery. So he, he, he reminds us of the gifts of God that we can distort and use in ways that are less than fulfilling, less than upbuilding. And the apostle teaches us to pay attention. And this warning has some implication. I see churches and fellowships that are reduced to country clubs. I see Christian fellowship that um, winds up being a little bit of a huddle where instead of living in the spirit, we wind up doing the things that everybody else does. We, Nancy and I have been in a couples group for over 25 years, and I got really frustrated at one point and, and said something I won't repeat, and I probably shouldn't have said, and it was very unmeasured and ungracious in a group gathering. And uh, speaking of wine, I may have had an extra glass before I said this. Um, but the thing is, I... I we were observing our, our couples group, and we had descended into meeting together and talking about what our kids were doing, what our latest doctor checkup said, and where we'd been on vacation or where we were going on vacation. And I said, you guys, this is supposed to be a Christian fellowship. We're supposed to be infusing each other in worship and walking in the Spirit. And we sound like all the other people in Sun City or Palm Springs or one other some senior village that's kind of God's waiting room. And we're wasting time in God's waiting room talking about stuff that isn't central to living. These are important things, our family. But our life in Jesus Christ is now, and it's real, and we need to infuse each other with enthusiasm and attention to that. And we easily fall off the schneid. And the comfort of good friends can wind up actually not feeding what we'd love to have see fed inside of us, what we need to have fed inside of us to grow. And there are lots of excesses that we get into that distract us from Jesus. As an alternative to the seductive and mind-numbing distractions of our culture and our fallen desires for comfort, which are legion, and our desires for familiarity and safety, which speak to our fears, the Holy Spirit and the Holy God invite us to a fully engaged and robust understanding and experience of the gospel that is called living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, operating in the Spirit, and um, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. That's not necessarily a cozy Friday evening huddle among the saints. It's actually call, a call to a new order and a new kingdom that has come and is coming. And as God's people, 
children of the living God, brothers and sisters with our Lord Jesus Christ, we're presented to the world as a taste and a look at what the kingdom to come will be like. God wants to offer us his presence so that we can offer ourselves to each other and to the world in a winsome way. And it's a, uh, I think we're called to a vigilance and a life of worship. In fact, in Romans 12 and several other places in Scripture, this is referred to Romans 12, um, talks about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And within at least my circle of theology and many of us here, worship is well-defined as living all of life with gratitude in the face of God. That we live all of life facing God. Repentance is the act of turning around and facing God. And we find all kinds of ways to sort of keep God on the horizon, but in the background as we move away, not toward him. And uh, we fully immerse ourselves in the language and action of faith. We find ourselves living a life of worship. And we have a daily faith that carries weight to it. And we don't want to become so familiar with God that we don't, bow before him in wonder and ask him daily for guidance by the Spirit where we should go. This has been an interesting year for me as I've been working with an organization um, called Centered. And our mission statement is raising up the next generation of Jesus-centered leaders. And one of the things we've been focusing in on that is hearing the Holy Spirit in our daily life. And uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that's, that came to us last summer, and I've been trying to practice and work on, and it's difficult and easy for me to forget, is to live daily in communion with the Lord in a way that we're actually saying, Lord, based on what I hear from your spirit, what I've read in scripture today, what do you want me to know? Or what do you want me to, be, to, to remember and be mindful of? And then the follow-up question to that is, what do you want me to do about it? Lord, what do you want me to know today, and what do you want me to do about it? I've been trying to practice that with these friends. We've been trying to remind each other. We've been trying in meetings when we're making decisions and arguing to stop down and say, Lord, what do you want us as a group to know and discern, and what do you want us to do about it? And for me, this has been very revitalizing, and I think that's a bit about what this scripture is teaching of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with each other and infusing a constant and daily form of worship. We need guides around us. We need to be guides to each other to help us offer ourselves as living fellowship, uh, sacrifice to God. And the warmth of our fellowship should drive us into a deeper communion with the Lord, not into the distractions that we find in other places. And so... I think this idea of infusing worship with each other is something we can begin to pick up on. We can encourage each other to ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? And we can do that with great gratitude and love for God and love for those around us. And we forget to do this in church and coffee hours, let alone in our daily life. Um, and we, we underperform. And I, I remember an experience that a friend of mine had. He was a college football player, and he was up against the team that was coached by the college I went to, uh, Pacific Lutheran University. You had a legendary football coach, now with a lord named Frosty Westring. And this guy that was, a, that was a friend of mine and somebody I knew was playing against Frosty's PLU team over in Spokane. 
and he hit the quarterback from PLU in a big, strong hit. You guys all know I like football. Knocked the guy silly on the ground. And then as the quarterback was laying there a little dazed, he grabbed the towel that quarterbacks have to dry their hands on out, threw it in his face, and said, here, wipe your tears away, Sonny. Your mom's not here to give you a hug. And Frosty Westring, who was a brilliant man, heard this. And he walked down the sideline, and he said to my young friend, hey, 23, and the guy who made the bad hit and the nasty comments getting up and trying to walk away, he goes, no, you, 23, 23. Finally, he turns around, what? And he said, 23, you're better than that. And Frosty pulls his cap down and walks back over to the 50-yard line for the next play. And this guy said of all the correction he'd ever gotten in his life for his parents or anything, a coach walking up to him and just reminding him that he's better than that just blew his mind. It changed his perspective, and it actually did some pretty deep things in his spiritual life. Maybe we need to be reminded that we are better than the way we allow ourselves to live a lot of times. And that just adding that element of the Spirit and being curious, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do today? Is, is revolutionary in how we live our lives in this world. Now, Paul repeats himself in our text and moves on, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Again, this urges us to push one another deeper into communion with Jesus, deeper into the light that he casts on all of our lives. Uh, I have an African-American friend here in Seattle. Maybe some of you know him. His name is Alan Belton. And Alan Belton has been through a lot. In, in the 60s, he was in Chicago. He was in the middle of the 1968 Democratic Convention riots when Chicago was being lit on fire and trying to make sense. And he, was just a, he became a very famous guy. And we've been on some planning teams with the centered organization together. And I get the privilege of being around Alan a good bit. And he's a very interesting fellow. He's deep, brooding congenial, very bright, very tied to Jesus, and you know it. And we'll be in meetings, and we'll start to get a little tense. And things will get confusing, and we're stuck. And Alan will stop, raise his hand, everybody looks at him. He hasn't said a thing yet, and he goes, you know it. And pardon me, I sing terribly. But he goes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. But there's something about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In this beautiful baritone voice, and we're all singing along. And they stop and he says, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. And there's a quiet in the room. We all look at each other and say, I don't know what just happened, but all of a sudden we're back on track. We're hearing each other. We're listening for the Spirit, and we're working together. And I always look at Alan as a guide, and I say, thanks be to God for that. If I'm ever with you and I try to break into a hymn or anything, you know that you need to take over that job and relieve me. I, when, I, when I sing, my very best trained singing sounds like a cat being strangled, out of key. But we really need this kind of encouragement in our lives. And Paul goes on to offer two other really important guidelines in our text and how we need to guide each other. One is always giving thanks to God the Father through him. Living every day gratefully in the face of God is best engaged with the words, thank you, Lord. Gratitude does something to our spirit. 
it does something to tune us to Jesus because we're thanking the one who's brought those blessings to us. And in that connection with him, he continues to pour more of himself out to us as we come to him in gratitude. A recent U.S. president said our world would completely change, especially America, if we woke up every morning in response to our alarm clocks and we just said, Lord, thanks for another day. And he was doing this talk and he stopped and he offered at the end of his talk, and by the way, every night when you take off those slippers and slip them under your bed, this confused me a little bit because I don't put my slippers under the bed, but it made sense suddenly. When you, when you slip your slippers under the bed, kneel down, put them under the bed with your hands, and just fold your hands and say, thank you, Lord, for this day. And give them a couple of specifics. And thank him even for the challenges that are hard and painful, but are shaping you in some divinely orchestrated way. Imagine what an environment we'd create if we told everybody that we were with something that we're deeply grateful for and carefully shared that it came from the Lord. What we usually do when we get together is share what? Our gripes. What about, you know, a lot of the women that I know that are artsy and crafty have these arts and crafts get-togethers, and they often call them come-to-the-stitch-and-bitch gathering, right? Well, what if we did stitch and praise? Eh, that sounds kind of religious. I don't know what to do with that. But, but what I'm getting at is if we live gratefully and infuse gratitude in others, again, that's a beginning of worship. And Paul says then to do everything you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Address your prayers to Jesus. He's rescued him from hell. Say, Jesus, I trust you today. Even when you're unsure about how the day is going to go, you're unsure about your health condition. I have so many chronic diseases, it's going to be a wonderful competition to see which one finally gets me. And, and yet, um, I think it's great to, in, in prayer, live in gratitude, express our gratitude. And we need guides to help us do this. Sometimes we're lazy or neglectful or distracted. And I need, I may be a pastor, I may have a doctor in theology. None of that means a rip when it comes to living out your faith in daily life. I need you, and I need friends like you. I'm in a small group with Jeremy Scherzinger now. What's about 14 years? I, need, I desperately need to be with Jeremy and with others who've been in that group with us. I need to be spurred on to worship Jesus, to love him deeply, to live in constant communion. I think we're in a time right now where our culture and the church is in a bit of Babylonian exile, and we need to form a counterculture of worship, a counterculture of gratitude, as opposed to entitlement or constant griping. An attitude of believing that when we say to Jesus, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do today, that Jesus cares about that and he'll talk. And when we're a little plugged up and blocked and distracted, if we really trust that and we're infusing worship in each other, one of our friends is going to send us an email or a text or give us a call or we're going to be with them soon, and they're going to strengthen me into that task. Some of us are gifted teachers, servants' hearts. Some of us are guides to each other, encouragers. I think all of us can be a bit better at encouraging and infusing worship in each other. So listen to these words from Paul one more time. Be filled 
with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, in hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My brother Alan Belton, if he were here, just might interrupt this service. He might stand up and sing, O worship the King, all glorious above. O gratefully sing of his power and love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor, and girded in praise. And then Alan would say, Jesus' name, amen. Let's infuse worship each other. And let's allow the Lord to meet us and infuse his grace in us as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Uh, I know we have guests here today, and I want to remind you as we come to this table this morning that this is not a Presbyterian or Christian Reformed or Reformed table. It's not a Lutheran or Methodist table. Thank God it didn't get named one of those, right? This is the Lord's table. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you're sorry for your sins, this table is for you. God offers you his very grace in the moment of receiving this bread in this cup. Spiritual contact with the God who gives you guidance, the God whom you can praise and worship on a daily basis, is here in this moment. So let's pray, let's open our hearts to him, and let's prepare to re receive the Lord's Supper this morning. God, I know that I need grace infusion and worship infusions all the time. I pray that you would raise up people in my life to make that happen. I pray that you'd raise something up in me that I do that. I'm supposed to be some religious professional, and I easily forget and just talk about what's happening this week or what aches rather than what thrills my heart, rather than what you seem to be saying and calling us to. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, make us all the more aware of your presence. Make us all the more determined to live in that presence on a daily basis. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.